Institutes. The original plan was to look at Esther chapter 7 and 8. Excuse me. Um, but we have like, what, 15 minutes? <laughs> so uh, we might not be able to talk about everything. Uh, if we don't get through it all, we can uh, revisit next week. Um, obviously, summer quarter goes through August. Uh, Wednesday, we'll start huddle during August, but uh, um, on Sundays, we'll keep going through Esther until the end of the month. So that's good news because we don't have a lot of time today. All right, so since we don't have a lot of time, I'll go ahead and read uh, chapter 7 and 8. So if you will follow along with me. It actually starts in uh, 614. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request, even to the half of, the, half of my kingdom? It shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahazar said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from uh, wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the uh, palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Har- uh, Harbona, one of the eunuchs in the attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king evaded. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told uh, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, 
which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahazar said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at the time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script to each, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the, the Jews who were in the, every city to gather and defend them, their lives, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day... Throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear the Jews had fallen on them. Okay, so that's chapter 7 and 8. So we're going to have to move pretty quickly. But remember, chapter 6 was the pivot point of, uh, of the narrative of Esther. Right? It's the turning point of the entire narrative. Right? This is where the story takes a turn, and we start seeing some resolutions to the, uh, the conflicts in the narrative of Esther. Um, and again, as we have talked about many times before, Esther is structurally very interesting, right? Um, in that it's mirrored. There's a lot of mirroring going on. There's a lot of comparisons throughout the narrative. And chapter 8 is especially heavily filled with these. And uh, if we don't have time today, we'll definitely look at them next week. Um, so let's take a look. So as we saw in chapter 6, the pivot point of the story, ironically, really isn't something that Esther does or, uh, or Mordecai does. It's actually, rather, that the king just happens to have read the, um, the chronicles of good deeds that, um, that has happened in the kingdom, right? And he is being read this. And in that is recorded what Mordecai did for the king uh, in the beginning of the story of Esther, is that because of Mordecai, uh, he was saved from an assassination plot. And he remembers this. Right? He didn't remember this before, but being read this, he remembers and he says, remember, 
what, what have we done to honor this person that has saved my life? And um, his attend, the, the boy who was attending him basically said, uh, nothing. And the king says, well, we've got to do something about that. We've got to honor this person that has uh, saved my life. And as you know from chapter 6, um, it happens where, uh, ironically, Haman is the one who serves uh, Mordecai in this uh, process of him being honored, right? Um, and that's kind of like the turning point of the story. Haman is no longer, at least it seems, Haman is no longer is in the power seat of the narrative, right? He, his power is starting to, to wane, and Mordecai is beginning to be more elevated above Haman. And the king, even, it seems, is on Mordecai's side, or the Jews' side, more than uh, Haman's. Now, king does not know in chapter 6 yet that Esther is a Jew, or Mordecai is a Jew, or that Esther and Mordecai are related. He'll find out later, uh, as we have just read in chapter 8. But, again, chapter 6 is the turning point. So, from this point on, in 7, 8, 9, 10, we're going to see things mirrored from the previous latter, first half of the narrative of the book of Esther. Things that are uh, compared, contrasted, and we'll see more of that. But before we move on, I think it's pretty significant that in terms of how Esther is read and what message is taken away from it, uh, that the turning point was not necessarily what Esther did or Mordecai did, right? Again, we can understand that Mordecai did what was good, what was righteous, right? And that allowed him to be in that record of chronicles of good deeds that the king was read to, right? But if the king just did not happen to, you know, want that to be read to him for whatever reason, he would not have remembered that Mordecai did X, Y, and Z. And that would not have set this uh, series of events in place, or at least started it. What I'm getting at is, we have talked about many times that Esther is, uh, a lot of people say that Esther is a godless book because God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once any of the characters say God's name or refer to God. Right? It talks a lot about the Jewish identity, and again, we talked about how that points to God you know, indirectly. Um, so we can't really say that, that Esther is necessarily a godless book, but it is true that the name of God is absent in the book of Esther. So it's interesting to see that the turning point of this story, of this narrative, the most important thing that happens that begins the victory of the Jews is not what Mordecai did, it's not what Esther did, but it's something that just seems like a coincidence or happenstance. Right? Now, as the readers, we can understand, we can interpret this not as just mere coincidence, but perhaps... Uh, something of divine providence. Um, And I think that's where we kind of see Esther's message, or at least what the author is trying to do. I believe, personally, that the author purposefully left out God's name. Or it wasn't a mistake. It It was a decision that the author made to leave out God's name. Because in doing so, these things, right, that point to God becomes even more highlighted. Right, rather than just saying, God did X, Y, and Z, making sure that uh, there are things that seem ironic, things that seem uh, just beyond human ability, um, coincidences, as some people would put. Right? Those things are highlighted as 
maybe certain things that God is working mysteriously behind the scenes. So uh, I, I thought that was interesting that, that we need to point out in the turning point that, that it's the most important character and the most important action is the king just happening to, to be read those good deeds. Again, uh, we can't take away from the fact that Mordecai did something good to end up in that, but I thought that was very interesting. So moving on to chapter 7. So chapter 7 is pretty straightforward. It's entirely the revealing of Esther's true intention with her feasts, right, that she has invited Haman and the king, and the execution of Haman. A couple of things. One, obviously the first mirroring, and probably the most obvious, is the mirroring of the feasts of Esther. So with the the turning point, chapter 6, sandwiched in between, right, we have the two feasts that Esther has prepared for the king and Haman. Uh, but on the second one, obviously, Haman is outed as the enemy of the Jews, and uh, he is punished uh, for attempting to kill the queen's people. Uh, Haman is, and, and this second one, Haman is ironically executed on the same wooden beam which he erected for the purpose of killing Mordecai. So this was a practice uh, in ancient Persia. Um, the, a lot of your Bibles probably translated to gallows, but it's actually just a straight-up wooden beam. And people who did commit a treacherous crimes would basically be uh, executed by being impaled on that singular beam. And that was a common practice in ancient Persia. Uh, and Haman erected this uh, for the purpose of killing Mordecai just because of the fact that Mordecai did not bow down to Haman. Right? Pretty petty. But we can see that it is mirrored now with Haman being uh, executed on the same beam that he uh, put or prepared for Mordecai, um, but this time for the sin of, for the crime of attempting to commit genocide, right, on the Jewish people. Uh, and when the king learns of this, the true nature of this, uh, he immediately is angry and um, executes Haman on the spot. Some takeaways from chapter 7. Um, I think it's important that, and I keep saying this, and we keep revisiting it, but I think it's, I think it's important uh, in terms of Esther's characteristic, her, her personality, um, and her character as a whole, that the king adored Esther, right? And it was this position that Esther was in that allowed her to make such a request. Uh, for the second time, I think in chapter 8, she goes in without permission, Right, in, into the king's presence, and the king hands out or reaches out the golden scepter to save her because it's illegal for anyone to go into the king's presence without permission. Uh, and if the first time she does this, it was, it was a thing of bravery because obviously um, she could have uh, ended up dead, uh, ended up executed. You, see, you saw what happened in the beginning of Esther, what happened to Queen Vashti, when she just refused to be summoned or, or answer the summon of the king. The king, obviously, is a very volatile character. He's angry. He's often drunk. He's a, I would say he's a weak leader, but of one of a pretty big character and uh, personality and pride. So uh, for Esther to risk her life like this, um, it's, it's, uh, it's something to think about. But more so than that, even more so than that, is her positioning in the narrative. Esther 
was a lot of people, in fact, all of the people who uh, were exposed to Esther's character, they, uh, Esther found favor in their eyes, including the king. Now, was the king a good person? I don't think so. Not at all. He was a drunkard. He was a poor leader. He uh, sends out edicts that cannot be withdrawn or revoked on a whim, right? And he almost killed an entire ethnicity of people because of this poor leadership. He's not a good person. But Esther, nevertheless, being the queen, uh, she's not, I'm not saying she's a doormat, that she gets stepped on all over by people. Uh, but she is humble. She's meek. And because of this, she wins the favor of many around her. And that's not just because, uh, you know, she's just kissing up, so to speak. It's because she is a good person. And she is true to her identity, not, as a, not only as a Jew, but also as just a, a person who is making everyday decisions, right, in her own judgment of what is right and what is wrong. And because of that, she is put in this position where she can make those decisions, where she can influence those decisions. Uh, so I think that speaks for a lot for us as Christians. We're not called to be recluses. We're not called to just retract from the world. There are people like King Ahasuerus who will abuse their powers. There are people like Haman who are just straight up evil. Or there are other people who we just simply don't agree with, who we can't find common ground with who we don't identify with. And then also, of course, there are people who we will agree with and and we will be friends with, families with. But point is, there are many different kinds of people in this world and we will run into all of them. That's just the reality. What we have control over, however, is how we act and how we present ourselves. And I feel like Esther and Mordecai in this story, though, you know, yes, they play a role in the narrative of Esther, the story of Esther, by the decisions that they made, right? But ultimately, ultimately, it was God's will that prevailed, right? Their decisions led them to be where they are at these moments. And when it counted, it mattered. And they were allowed to, to make the important decisions. So what I'm saying is, as Christians, as we live our lives... The individual decisions, the small things that that we choose to do or not to do in our lives, to be good people, to be upstanding citizens in our community, not just in the church, in the walls of our church buildings, but in the community as a whole, it matters, right? Our reputation is not just for show. It matters because it influences other people, right? And who knows, maybe when it counts, when push comes to shove, when we are put in the position that Esther is in, in the narrative right here, or Mordecai is in right here. Who knows, maybe we'll be called up. We will be needed to make those important decisions, right? And we, at, at that point, we will know that the decisions that we have made every day led up to that point and allowed us to be in that position where we can be of, a, of a, an instrument, an importance to God's plan. So I think that's something that is a prevailing message of Esther, and especially shown uh, in the latter half of Esther. Again, King Hazarus, not a good leader, not even a good person, I don't think. But Esther was a good queen, 
Right? She had control over that. Right? She didn't have control, control over what Ahasuerus was doing or what kind of leadership that he had, but she had control over who she was. Right? And that's a lesson for us all. Um, another thing to point out is that Haman's fall was uh, called, well, Haman's fall was upon himself caused by his own ambitions. And, you know, this is an easy, this is an easy one. It's a freebie. Uh, it's pretty obvious that Haman's ambitions uh, kind of overtook uh, him, and he became too prideful, too full of himself, um, and he became too confident even, right? Even to the point of building uh, an execution device for uh, somebody without, I, I don't think he, he didn't go through the king with this. He just decided he wanted to kill him because he didn't like the guy, uh, because he didn't like what he was doing or what he was representing, uh, nor his people. Uh, that's, you know, that's blind uh, ambition. That's too much of self. And, it, and it's, this is an easy lesson for us to glean from the character of Haman. Obviously, it ended up where uh, his end was tragic. Um, now, could he have been saved? I don't know. You know, who can say? Uh, but because of uh, the anger of King Ahasuerus, he was immediately put to death. Lesson for us is in that is obviously we should not become too ambitious. Now, you know, we can have dreams. Uh, I'm not saying Christians are not allowed to have dreams. You know, we're, we're not allowed to have ambitions. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But in our, uh, in our path to achieve our goals and things like that, we should never become so confident, so proud, and so full of ourselves that we don't see each other, that we don't see other people that we don't see God. Um, Haman was alone in that. Even his wife was trying to tell him, you know, if you go against the Jews, and if the Jews are really who they are, who they say they are, then you might not win, that you might not get out of this unscathed. But he didn't listen. Right? He was too confident. He did not see around him. He did not see the other individuals, other souls around him. And he definitely didn't see God in all of this. So that's a lesson for us to keep our eyes up and our eyes open and our hearts open too, uh, to not be so full of ourselves and so blinded by our ambitions and our goals and our plans. It doesn't even have to be ambition. It can just be a simple plan that we want for ourselves. We must not let that blind us from what is around us and our own uh, shortcomings. So that's chapter 7. Uh, chapter 8 is kind of like the undoing of the damages Haman has caused and the rise of Mordecai into power. That's kind of like the summary of chapter 8. Verses 1 through 8, uh, Esther and Mordecai plan to save the Jews. Um, it's important to note that the king's decree cannot be revoked in verse 8. Right? Though this seems like a disadvantage, um, we will see that this will actually allow the Jews to defend themselves from the people who who are out to get them under the decree that is sent out by Haman. So Mordecai will be allowed to send out a new decree, right? That is kind of, uh, that adds on basically to the old one. Verses 9 through 14, the king's scribes were summoned and Mordecai's new decree that will allow the self-defense of the Jews, that will go out to all the provinces. Um, Sivan, uh, that's around like May, June-ish is the estimate. It's the third month of the ancient Jewish calendar and third month of the spring season in the entire calendar. Um, 
verses 15 through 17, Mordecai is elevated and the Jews of Persia celebrate. So the Jews are no longer in fear of what they are and what they believe in, their identity, right? And, and that's been a big part of Esther is the identity of the Jews. It's important and it's highlighted because, again, God's name is not uttered, not once in the narrative of Esther. So it's important that his people have a strong identity because it points to God, right? So um, that's pretty significant that we have a kind of resolution of that uh, arc uh, in the narrative where the Jews are no longer in fear or they're hiding. Remember, Esther herself hid who she was uh, when she was going into that pageant, even after she became a queen, right, until chapter 8. She hid who she was. So the Jews are no longer in fear of what they are um, or because of what they are. And these events, uh, though, you know, it was initially tragic because of uh, Haman's evil deeds, it allowed the Jews to become confident in their identity with God. So some takeaways from chapter 8. Let me give you some examples of the mirroring that's going on. Uh, you can see that King's signet was given to Mordecai off of Haman's finger. Uh, Cross-reference that back to chapter 3, verse 10. That's when the king gives the ring to uh, Haman. Mordecai and Esther devise a plan to save the Jews, uh, then now brings that plan to the king. Right. So Esther and Mordecai have been devising this plan of, hey, what are we going to do about this? impending genocide uh, in, in chapter 4, but in chapter 8, verses 3 through 8, um, that becomes resolved as they bring the plan to the king. Mordecai's decree is sent out, cross-reference that to um, Haman's decree being sent out back in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Uh, the Jews rejoice, right? they're happy, they're rejoicing uh, instead of despairing. Cross-reference that back to chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, when they find out that they're about to be wiped out, about to be annihilated. What do they do? They, uh, they go into a, a period of mourning, right, including Mordecai, uh, sackcloth and ashes. Um, and Mordecai, and this is probably the most obvious one, Mordecai obviously is the... Uh, the mirror of Haman and vice versa. And uh, Mordecai is now elevated instead of Haman, cross-reference that back to chapter 3, verse 1, where Haman is promoted to be kind of like the second-in-command uh, under the king. Now Mordecai is that, he fills that new role, newly vacant role. Feasts and holidays celebrated by the people instead of just the people in power. This is not as obvious. Uh, if you cross-reference that back to chapter 3, verse 15, uh, after the decree about uh, the Jews, the annihilation of the Jews being sent out, what does what do Haman and the king do? They celebrate. They drink wine and feast together. That's uh, kind of crazy. Uh, while Susa and the provinces are thrown into confusion, chaos. Uh, but in chapter 8, uh, it's kind of like the, the brighter... Uh, comparison to that um, is now the people, not only just the Jews, by the way, but also also all of Susa celebrates uh, um, uh, Mordecai's rise to power because Haman is just not a good leader. And you can't really hide that, right? When you're in the seat of power, everything, you're under scrutiny, right? And things become 
public. And uh, obviously the people knew what kind of leader Haman was. Um, I mean, I think you can tell by the kind of decree that he sent out about a genocide. So um, when Mordecai is elevated instead of Haman, everyone rejoices. Everyone is happy. So um, when the righteous and their righteousness is elevated into seats of power, you know, the people suffer less. And we see that throughout all of Old Testament. It's not just in Esther. All of Old Testament. Especially, if you, I love the minor prophets. It's my favorite genre. Genre section of the Old Testament. If you have time, read through the Minor Prophets. Not not very long. But throughout all of the Minor Prophets, the prevailing message is that when you, de- uh, when you deviate from God, when you deviate from the standards of the Lord, what you get is, uh, or at least in, in antiquity, the society that these people found themselves in, what you get is uh, decline in morality, uh, ethics, uh, religion, um, even things like liberty and, and uh, um, people in power exploiting the poor, the powerless, the helpless, um, sexual uh, immorality um, and deviancy. All of these things take place when Israelites deviate from God, uh, when these nations deviate from the standards of God. Um, and we can kind of see that with Esther too, is uh, it's not a small thing for someone evil to be in the seat of power, right? And it makes a big difference for someone who is upright, who knows what's right and will do what is right to be in seats of power. And you see that with Haman. So I think there's something to be said about that too. So there, the resolution of Esther's conflict is reached, though obviously we have uh, more to read, uh, which we will get to. Um, the conflict has been resolved, and the Jewish people are saved. Um, chapters 9 and 10 will be more on the actual defense that the Jews will make on the 13th of Adar um, and the establishment of the Feast of Purim. So some takeaways from this resolution, and we'll close out real quick after this. Well, let's just do one. We don't have a lot of time. I think the main message of the resolution is that, and I keep hammering this, um, but it's so we don't forget, uh, Esther and Mordecai, they played important roles, right? But ultimately, many things were out of their control. The situations that they were put in, the circumstances they, they found themselves in, uh, even with the ability of what they could do and what they could not do, a lot of things were limiting factors to them, and a lot of things they just could not help or really control. But nevertheless, they made the choices that they made, right? Now, I will say, uh, I will remind you, these are morally ambiguous characters, right? They, there are violations of the Torah that the, these two commit. Um, they don't mention God. They don't talk about God, right? Uh, so there are some things that point to the fact that these are not perfect people, right? Esther and Mordecai, though they were good, they're not perfect people, Um and a lot of things were out of their control. I think we can relate to that. Right? We're not perfect, and we are not—we uh, are not these moral giants that we seem to often find in the Bible. Um, I would argue even those are flawed, uh, but we are definitely flawed, and we are definitely with fault. 
but we do our best with what we are given. Right? Knowing that when we do, we will put ourselves in a position where we can be useful in the will of God. Where we can be useful in the lives of other people who need us, right? We can be useful in the lives of ourselves sometimes even without us even realizing. So I think the lesson of Esther is not about, uh, well, I can say many things. The lesson of Esther really definitely is about uh, not being perfect and not being, you know, this moral giants, but rather, are you making the small decisions, the right decisions every day, and are you being the person that you can be proud of, that you can present yourselves to God, to Jesus, and say, I have done my best, and I have put myself in a, in, in a position where I can be of use, not only to God, to Jesus, the church, but also to other people. Because from Mordecai's righteousness, from Esther's bravery, not only the Jews, but I'm sure everyone benefited. Obviously, they rejoiced. Right? The whole city of Susa, that's a capital city of the Persian Empire. They all rejoiced when they saw someone righteous coming into power uh, where Haman used to be. So our reputation, our presentation to the community, our presence in the lives of the people around us, it matters. Right? That is not insignificant. Paul talks about it a lot to be peacemakers, to, to meet people where they are. And I think that is a really significant message of the resolution of Esther that we can take away from this book. Thank you very much. You're dismissed.